Connect the Dots. I'm Allison Rose-Levy, here with you every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm a longstanding journalist of health, the environment, food, and attendant policies, along with uh, being a media critic after many decades of work in both the uh, mainstream and in the last dozen years or so, the independent media. Um, and each week on Connect the Dots, we connect the dots between your well-being, the well-being of our communities, the well-being of our society, and the ecological stability of our habitat, planet Earth. And each week on the show, I discuss with different experts, authors, scientists, advocates, economists, uh, all the different factors in our interconnected world that determine our health and environmental stability. Uh, I'm very honored um, to have on today's show uh, a leading scientist and architect of uh, new energy solutions, uh, of whose work I've been aware uh, from my own longstanding reporting on fracking and pipelines going back over a decade. Our guest today is Mark C. Jacobson. He's a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University. Um, Professor Jacobson studied atmospheric, oceanic, and environmental sciences at UCLA. Uh, and he's also um, been the principal um, scientific architect of a policy plan that we've covered a great deal on this program and have many, many past shows uh, discussing the Green New Deal, which is uh, which he has played in a very important role in doing the scientific and, and structural uh, work and planning to bring us to 100% renewables. Um, so we'll be discussing that today in reference to uh, other developments on the public scene. Um, and so it's an honor to have you here on Connect the Dots, Mark C. Jacobson. Thank you for being well, with thank us. You for, thank you for having me on the show. So, um, you know, one of the things, what we're, what we're going to be focusing on today is that recently a film called Planet of, of Humans uh, has been, which was produced, executive produced by Michael Moore and uh, directed by Jeff Gibbs, his longstanding collaborator, um, has re was released just, you know, recently on Earth Day, and it's kind of been the subject of a great deal of controversy. Um, and so we'll be kind of talk, going through some key elements uh, in that uh, film, um, which, you know, one of, one of the things I often say as a media critic and someone who's looking at how media shapes our sense of possibility or limits and restricts our sense of possibility, um, which is my constant theme, is that films can be very moving and emotionally persuasive, but it doesn't mean, uh, you know, but it's difficult to fact-check them. They come at us in real time. We absorb them neurologically. We're moved by them. They sound persuasive. But, you know, really, uh, there's no sourcing. There's no links. Um, there's a lot. There are many reasons why really um, debriefing uh, the quality of the information in a film is much harder than in online or printed work where, you know, we have to link to things. We can't just 
kind of get a gotcha piece of video and make a bald statement about something. And so that's why I'm very delighted that we'll be talking um, with Mark Jacobson about the actual reality um, that the film covers or uh, failed or misrepresents in many in- instances. And this is especially important because the Green New Deal is, an imp- is basically the next phase of climate activism. And, uh, you know, it's important not to kind of, you know, cast doubt on whether some of the important features of it have worked and also to contrast things that may have been historically undertaken um, by the environmental movements um, but are no longer as operative and to miss the opportunity of where we are today. So um, Mark Jacobson, you know, is someone who really worked on the entire foundation of what is now standing as the Green New Deal, could you orient uh, our listeners um, to, you know, how you and the Green New Deal are looking at fulfilling the promise of a transition to 100% renewables? I'm sure. So, well, first, yeah, the summary of the of 100% renewable energy, which is the basis of the Green New Deal, and it's really 100% clean renewable energy, not just renewable. It's clean renewable energy. So that means we do not actually include dirty sources of energy, even if they're renewable. So we do not include uh, biofuels. We do not include biomass. Um, we don't include coal with carbon capture or gas with carbon capture or natural gas at all. And so this film, half of the entire film is about criticizing biomass and biofuels and bioenergy in general which actually has no bearing whatsoever on the functioning of the of a real Green New Deal, which is based on 100% clean renewable energy because it, our, our version of the Green New Deal does not even include biomass or bioenergy or, or biofuels because it's polluting, because it takes a huge amount of land. Both are polluting. Both take land, uh, well, many types of biomass take land, and water as well, which comes from agriculture. And, and then the there's a lot of energy that goes into producing uh, biofuels and biomass, and that energy uh, renders a lot of that energy will come from fossil fuels, and that energy renders uh, the carbon benefits pretty small compared to using wind or solar. So, yeah, the first point is that yeah, literally half that movie is just not relevant to a Green New Deal. Uh, but what is relevant is so what we do plan is a in a renewable future, clean renewable future, is onshore and offshore wind, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and in power plants, concentrated solar power, uh, geothermal uh, electricity and heat, uh, small amounts of tidal and wave power, and uh, existing hydroelectric power and for electricity. And there's also um, some solar thermal for heat as well. And that, along with storage, so we need electricity storage, heat storage, cold storage, and uh, some hydrogen storage. And the hydrogen in the system would would be used primarily for long-distance heavy transportation, and it would be produced by electrolysis, uh, so from electricity, where the electricity comes from the wind, the water, and the solar power, or what we call WWS, or the electricity sources. And so, yes, we need the storage. We need um, generation of electricity. And we're going to transition all energy sectors uh, so we'll transition vehicles to electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cell. 
uh, we'll transition building heating uh, to electric heat pumps and some solar uh, hot water preheating, uh, some district heating, uh, and air conditioning will be heat pumps as well. Uh, for our industry, we use electric uh, high temperature processes like electric arc furnaces, uh, electric resistance furnaces, and induction furnaces. And so everything will be electrified or there'll be some direct heat and all the electricity and heat would be provided by wind and water and solar. So there's no biofuels, there's no biomass, there's actually no nuclear power, there's no coal with carbon capture, there's no natural gas with or without carbon capture, um, anything like that. So yeah, that's the summary of kind of what the Green New Deal would look like in terms of the technologies. And then based on that, we can then focus in on the film. You can see, uh, we can see which technologies he was criticizing of those and we can see if those criticisms are valid or not. Yes, let's let's, so, let's, let's do that. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, for example, I mean, uh, for those who haven't seen the film, uh, one principal critique is that um, in current uh, solar power, in current wind power, um, there are backup systems um, that are uh, uh, where the energy that where there are shortfalls in current uh, solar power, that energy is supplied or backed up or complemented by energy coming from, for example, uh, natural gas. And there has been the allegation that renewables and planning for renewables has as a kind of shadow uh, twin um, coming along with it a, uh, an incentive for, to build more natural gas uh, facilities. Um, so, and, and, that, and that's really the basis of, or, you know, kind of a, a one basis of the film's criticism of solar power. But what you're describing is a complete withdrawal from that kind of energy. Is that something that, um, you know, pres like, uh, presuming there'll be some kind of transition, ideally, is that something that is present on day one, or is it something that's part of the build-out process that will remove all of the um, fossil fuel uh, dependency as the plan progresses? Like, how just to get a before we get further into kind of the film and what is saying that that basic question about um, you know you will be getting out of it. Presumably, there'll be a transition out of it. Um, and, you know, at what stage will we be seeing, you know, a substantive shift that greatly reduces our carbon output uh, over either present day or over the time when the film was made, which is, or, you know, a lot of the footage was shot, which was over a decade ago, apparently. So, um, yeah, so the issue, the question is, is well, wind, the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine, so you need um, one. So when you don't have either wind or solar or neither, you need some other source of energy, electricity mm -hmm. in particular, to match power demand on the grid. And, mm -hmm. well, first of all, um, you know, they're saying right now that the source of that backup the, the, the source of that backup power is just is gas. Okay, that's what they're saying. Right. Um, however, yeah. that's just not true because actually in 2000, in fact, they also they took that argument further and said that all the coal plants that are being shut down in the U.S. they're saying those are being replaced by gas. I mean, that's just not factually true. If you look at the data in the United States, for example, in 2019, which was last year, 72% of all the new electric power generation in the U.S. was clean renewable energy. 
there wasn't, I mean, there's so it was a very much small minority. I mean, less than 30% was, was natural gas. And there wasn't a, it wasn't being coal wasn't being replaced by gas and wind turbines that are going up are not being backed up only by gas. So they're being backed up more by other renewables. And, you know, there are plenty of other options besides gas to back up renewables. I mean, we have existing hydroelectric power, which is a, it's basically big dams or batteries. And people say, well, we can't, we don't want new more dams. Well, we don't need more dams. In fact, in fact, we can remove most of the dams in the United States and it won't affect the electric power system at all because only 3% of dams in the United States, of 80,000 dams in the United States, only 3% uh, have hydroelectric power associated with them. So 97% of all dams have no hydroelectric power. So we can re- re- remove tens of thousands of dams without having any reduction of uh, electricity from hydro. So that's one source is hydroelectric. Another source is called pumped hydroelectric, where you have two reservoirs, an upper and lower one. And when you have excess electricity at night, like sometimes you have extra wind at night, and you can use that to pump water up a hill. And then when you need the electricity, you let the water drain down a hill uh, through a turbine to power a generator to produce electricity. And then, well, there's also what's called concentrated solar power, in desert regions, there are a few plants up in the U.S., but they're more worldwide, where you focus light off of mirrors onto a central tower to heat a fluid. That fluid then can be stored overnight in a tank. And when you need electricity, you run the hot fluid by water to boil the water. The steam from the water uh, runs a turb- pushes through a turbine to generate electricity or to uh, power go through a generator to generate electricity. So that's concentrated solar. Then there are other things like there's um, flywheels, compressed energy, st- compressed air storage for electricity. And then batteries, of course, are coming down in cost. And batteries are being put up all over the world in big power plants, and they're, they're, dr- they're reducing the cost of energy in many places that they're being put up compared to even gas. Like in South Australia, uh, battery st- Tesla battery storage coupled with wind and solar uh, saved on the order of tens of millions of dollars. Uh, because you can ramp up batteries much faster than you can a natural gas uh, plant for backup power. But batteries are much better than gas for backup power. Hydroelectric is much better than gas for backup power because, you know, you can ramp up a hydro, you can get electricity from a hydro plant in 15 seconds. You can get it from a battery in less than one second. I mean, from natural gas, you need like a minute to five minutes to get uh, that backup power. So there are better uh, options and the cost of batteries are coming down, but the cost of all these other options I already just l- listed are dropping even further. You know, another technology that's uh, starting to be commercialized is called gravitational the um, storage of gravitational mass. So, for example, when you have just like pumped hydro, when you have excess electricity, you can lift a, a concrete block and put it on a uh, tower of pile a pile of blocks. And then when you need electricity, you lower that concrete block. And so that's basically uh, that's another source of electricity generation, just like pumped hydro. It's estimated to be some more cost than pumped hydro, and both are much cheaper than batteries. But batteries are coming down in cost, and they are very convenient. But it's not only electricity storage, because uh, keep in mind, we're going to be electrifying all energy sectors. So we're going to be electrifying transportation and building, heating, and industry. And so when we electrify cars, that means, that means you have an additional source of electricity, 
Um, however, it's less like one third the electricity needed compared to the amount of energy needed gasoline, or one one fourth even, because an electric car uses one fourth the energy of a gasoline car to go the same distance. So, you, but you do need more electricity in that case. However, you can charge the car pretty much any time, day or night. So utilities can give people incentives to charge their car when there's an excess demand or excess supply of electricity from wind or solar and not to charge when there's a lack of it. So this is called demand response, where utilities give people incentives uh, to use electricity at certain times of the day and not use it at other times of the day. And this is even more effective at control at matching power, demand, and supply on the grid. So in the movie, for explained, well, uh, they only use a, a silly example of, well, one turbine, one wind turbine, when it's not, the wind's not blowing and the electricity goes out. Well, first of all, that makes sense right. because it's not just one turbine on the grid. There are multiple turbines in many different places. And, yeah, in one location, the wind's not blowing. But uh, when you look over larger and larger areas, you, in fact, we've done a study on this. You can look over 19 wind farms, for example. There's not a hour of the year where you have zero power when you're added over all those 19 wind farms. In over the size of a uh, medium-sized state. And the same thing when you add solar into the mix. Solar peaks during the day. Wind often peaks at night over land. And so they're very complementary in nature as well. When the wind's not blowing during the day, the sun is often shining due to meteorological reasons and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so wind and solar are complementary in nature. When you combine those, you reduce the hours again uh, where you have zero or low power. Uh, and then you, then you add hydro into the mix. You have geothermal, which is a baseload type of power. And that, you know, we've done studies for 143 countries uh, grouped into 24 rural regions and found that there's, we can match power demand versus supply every 30 seconds for three years everywhere in the world. It's just it's not uh, a rocket science. It's an optimization problem, and it's the, the movie just oversimplifies uh, the problem and this, and this uh, doesn't even talk about really the solutions. But so No, they don't talk about the solutions at all. Let me just um, uh, kind of just ask sort of two quick questions. Obviously, um, you have the plans and you've done the science to show how this can be done. Um, so question number one is, obviously, we're not there today, and we need to get there more rapidly. I mean, in the plan that you designed for the Green New Deal, and unfortunately, we've had some um, political uh, setbacks to launching, but in the plan, um, were it to launch, um, you know, uh, at, at whatever, you know, if that happens, which we can only certainly, I mean, that's where it would be great to devote our energy and attention. Um, you know, how rapidly would we theoretically be able to get to a point that was, like, let's make two benchmarks. One is everything, you know, the 100% is kind of one, you know, benchmark. But let's say, you know, uh, some other percentage, which perhaps you could define, of where we have such a substantive difference over um, this burning of the fossil fuels that we have today that we see significant benefit. Um, You know, how soon could we be seeing significant benefit if we can gather the public and political will to move down that road? 
you know, and so that's well, one question. And then there's an economic question, but we'll kind of hold that one off for the minute. <laughs> well, our plan is that we, well, we need to transition about 80% of the world by 2030 and 100% mm-hmm. uh, no, no later than 2050, ideally 2040, 2045. But mm-hmm. that 80% by 2030 is really what we need. And, yes, mm-hmm. it's technically possible to do it. It's certainly possible. And, in fact, there are 10 countries of the world in their electric power sector that are at 100% renewable electricity. And so there are examples of it being done in countries, but most of those countries have hydro, large hydro, although Scotland uh, is mostly wind. Um, but the So it is possible, but we really need to do it. And I think there's no limit as to how fast we can do it if – we all put our minds to it. That means if the governments put their minds to it and uh, the population. I mean, the public opinion polls suggest that people do want to change. And there's one poll um, of, of 26,000 people that said that over 80% of people in 13 different countries uh, wanted to transition to 100% renewable energy. Uh, so, But that doesn't translate into actual policies. So we, we would need uh, strong policies put in place, such as the Green New Deal, or something similar, uh, to actually uh, to actually plan out and uh, plan this transition and put deadlines on it. Uh, but just like anything, it's really in this case they're, 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 we have 95% of the technologies already available. So sure, there's a ramp up time to implement them, but if that's the priority, and if we decide we're going to eliminate all fossil fuels at the same time. We can then take away those subsidies and then move those subsidies uh, towards speeding up the transition to a clean, renewable energy future. So I think it is technically and economically, it's even more economically possible because it will save a huge amount of money to do this transition. People say, oh, the Green New Deal is really expensive. It's, no, it's not. It's really cheap. It, it reduces social costs 90%, 90%. And it reduces energy costs, in the, the annual energy costs of the country on the order of 60%. So social co- what are social costs? Social costs are energy costs plus uh, air pollution health costs and plus climate costs. And when you transition, so to look at the costs here, when you transition to entirely the clean renewable energy and storage for everything, uh, you reduce end-use power demand. And end-use demand is what people actually use for energy. And we're talking about all energy sectors here, transportation, building, heating, cooling, industry, electricity. We reduce that demand about 57% when you electrify everything and and then use clean renewable energy for that. And how do you get 57% reduction of demand? Well, it's due to the efficiency of electric vehicles over and some, to some degree, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles over internal combustion engine vehicles, because like an individual uh, gasoline car, only 17 to 20% of the energy in the gasoline goes to move the car, and the rest is waste heat. Uh, about 86, 80 to 86% of the electricity that goes into an electric car goes to move the car, and the rest is waste heat. So by electrifying cars, you reduce your demand just in the, for vehicles by energy by about you know 70 80 percent and as a result but when you average over all sectors uh, you end up getting like on the order of 15 percent or so reduction of power demand just due to transportation and you can also you also get an efficiency 
due to using heat pumps instead of gas heaters for homes and for air and water heating on the order of 20 to 22 percent. And you get an efficiency of industrial electricity using electricity for industrial heat uh, versus uh, for uh, versus using oil or gas or coal-based uh, high-temperature heaters of but just a few percent, three or four percent. But then there's also savings of the fact that 12 percent of all energy worldwide is used to uh, mine, transport, and refine fossil fuels and uranium. You eliminate that because wind comes right to the turbine, solar comes right to the panel. You don't need to mine anymore for continuously for fossil fuels. And that saves 12% of all energy. Then we can get end-use energy efficiency improvements beyond the business as usual. That's like another 6 or 7%. And so we end up with 57% reduction of power demand just by going to this new system. On top of that, then the cost per unit energy, that's like the cents per kilowatt hour of, of electricity, for example, uh, that goes down due to the fact that wind and solar are are cheaper, much cheaper now. They're half the cost of natural gas now, and for example, in the United States and worldwide, wind and solar are the cheapest forms of new electric, new electricity. But let's say it's it's about a 10% reduction of the cost per unit energy, combined with a 57% reduction of energy requirements. Then you end up getting about a 60% or so reduction of annual costs of energy. And then on top of that, worldwide we have seven million air pollution deaths per year due to air pollution, primarily from fossil fuels and biofuels. And we eliminate those, uh, most of those, 90% of those, and that uh, saves on the order of $30 trillion per year worldwide. In the U.S., it's about $700 billion per year per savings because in the U.S., there are about 78,000 pollution deaths per year. And they, yeah, based on statistical cost of life, it's about a $700 billion savings per year there. In the U.S., we'd save another $3 trillion uh, due to climate costs in 2050 per year. And so when you add up those cost savings for the health climate costs in the U.S., for example, and the energy cost savings, you end up getting a 90% reduction of the total social costs uh, to the U.S. So there's no downside to transition. It's cheaper. Cleaner, we end up creating 3 million jobs in the U.S. by transitioning 28 million worldwide. These are net jobs over lost, so that's long-term, full-time jobs, not just individual one-year construction jobs. These are full-time, long-term jobs. And we reduce health problems, we reduce, reduce climate problems, we create jobs, we save people money, uh, and we end up using even less land than with the fossil fuel system. In the, in the United States, about 1.3% of all U.S. land area uh, is used for the fossil fuel system. And you know, we go instead with our clean renewable energy system, it's about 1% in the U.S., about 0.65% worldwide of land area uh, to transition to clean renewable energy. So, so yeah, in so contrast, okay. what the film is saying, which is they're in effect looking to the past and saying these were old attempts, that were compromised in various ways that were the best thought at the time, but that did not really work very well, uh, and then, you know, wound up becoming a uh, an investment vehicle for people back at that time that were offering them. What you're pointing toward is not looking back those 10 years and, sh and sure, you know, there is stuff to critique, but all of that um, is 
you know, being completely eliminated by the Green New Deal plan, and instead you're looking forward to 10 years to what level of of cost-cutting efficiency and improvement across the board um, could be done by, you know, the next 10 years being devoted toward the Green New Deal plan. And that's a striking contrast. It's like, you know, it's kind of like archiving the past and expressing regret is what the film is portraying. And you've already, you know, made the the same assessments in effect and are, you know, not pursuing these uh, biofuels and biomass in the way that uh, uh, was done in the past because they have these problems. And so they're already eliminated. So, um, you know, kind of... uh, the game or the exercise of saying who should be punished for having promoted these earlier is, you know, it may have a place uh, in, you know, historically, and I don't want to dismiss that, but it's far more important that our future focus and the focus of our energies um, be placed not only in a very well scientifically thought through plan that, you know, that has been engineered um, to the need, but but that also already is sitting on a political platform. And even though we are, you know, in a moment of political trouble now, and we don't know how long that will be continuing, that's more of the problem. The more it's more of a political problem. How do we get this implemented? Than it is an engineering problem to uh, assume that renewables have nothing to offer based on you know their earlier false starts. When you first began looking into this, you eliminated, just to kind of backtrack a little bit into the film's territories, you uh, eliminated the notion of using biomass or biofuel from your plants. I mean, you, they were, you know, did you ever like them or do you, did you kind of right away see that they were non-starters in a certain way? Well, it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't a question of liking them or not. We had analyzed them scientifically for many years. Yes. And going back to 2004, five, um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, and subsequently, so I analyzed the air pollution impacts of bioethanol, uh, for example, on U.S. air quality, and with the very detailed three-dimensional computational model of the entire United States, and which had never been done before. I mean, keep in mind that the people who claim that bio, um, let's say ethanol, for example, uh, was better than gasoline, they they would they never ran a they never actually simulated the chemistry of the atmosphere. Uh, they just looked at um, some selective emissions from fuels like the ethanol versus gasoline, and said, oh, well, there's less benzene, there's less, um, uh, there's less toluene and xylene from ethanol, for example, than from gasoline. Uh, therefore, uh, ethanol must be better for people's health. Well, but they just completely ignored the fact that there's like orders, you know, almost two orders of magnitude, one to two orders of magnitude, higher uh, acid aldehyde and also formaldehyde from, uh, from ethanol vehicles compared to gasoline vehicles. And acetaldehyde and formaldehyde are two of the five most uh, potent uh, ozone producers in photochemical smog. And so these, these companies that were pushing this, or the investors, were, just had no idea what they were talking about. They, were just, they, were, they thought that air quality was uh, proportional to the, the chemicals that were emitted, not realizing that there's actually atmospheric chemistry going on where chemicals are transformed in the atmosphere to something else. And those, those, it's what does what people breathe is what they what they're transformed into, and it, it's almost like they were just had no idea what they were doing, and so they had, they misled the public, saying trying to say that you know 
these ethanol vehicles will make air quality better. And, uh, and anyway, so we did a study back in 2007 uh, looking at this problem of ethanol versus gasoline in detail. Did uh, um, other ones a couple of years later, and we looked at other things like land use, um, huge amounts of land. I mean, we need 15% of the entire United States, for example, uh, to, to grow enough corn for corn ethanol to power the U.S. vehicle fleet. Uh, and then, you know, 12 per, it was around 12% of all agriculture is irrigated in the United States, so you'd take a, a huge percent of the water supply of the U.S. just to irrigate such land and that's necessary. So, yeah, we looked at uh, biofuels and biomass from, uh, from not only a climate point of view, but also air quality and water and land point of view. This is what the difference is between what we've done and what most studies that have been proposing some different solutions is is that they have ignored the air quality effects of different solutions. And this is a, it's a kind of right with me because, yeah, a lot of people who focus on climate just completely ignore or don't care about air pollution health effects, and or they're certainly not in any of their analyses or in their considerations. So this is why we get biofuels or biomass in what we call the all-of-the-above policy uh, mm-hmm. because of the claim that it just reduces carbon without even considering what the air pollution effects are. Same thing with carbon capture. You know, carbon capture actually increases air pollution because it doesn't actually reduce any of the pollutants from, like, coal or gas plants aside from CO2. In fact, it increases them 25 to 50% because that's how much more energy you need to run these, the carbon capture equipment. So, you know, proponents of carbon capture, proponents of biofuels, biomass, you know, they completely ignore air pollution impacts, and then um, this is why uh, we then open ourselves up to... Uh, problems, you know, we get films like this that are criticizing uh, technologies that should never be in the conversation in the first place. Um, what about mm. drawdown technologies for agriculture? Are they part of the plan or are they slated to be part of the plan? In other words, shifting the food system um, to regenerative agricultural practices, land use, shifting the subsidies so that um, there can be some form of carbon capture done through this method of farming as well as uh, a, an improvement of the uh, quality and healthfulness of the food supply? Is, is that also part of it? Because it's been mentioned, but I wasn't sure if it was ever actually scoped out in the Green New Deal plans. Well, the only type of carbon capture that's legitimate in a, you know, in a plan to reduce, to solve the climate problem in particular is one that is natural air capture. So that's like growing trees, preventing, but even more important, preventing deforestation, preventing permanent deforestation. Or so you could either grow more trees or prevent current ones from being burned down. When you, you know, when you have biomass burning today, or even agricultural waste burning, you're you're not only like in the case of the forest, you know, eliminating part of a forest, but you're putting a huge amount of air pollution in the air, and you're putting greenhouse gas in the air. Now, some people will say, well, you're growing that, that CO2 that's emitted from the for deforestation or agriculture waste burning. Uh, it comes back to regrow plants. And that's partly true because but when you burn a forest down, first of all, if it's permanent deforestation, that forest is replaced with like agricultural land, which is lower carbon intensity. So you do not regrow uh, that nearly so much. But even if you did regrow an entire forest, it takes 80 years to regrow a forest. 
entirely. Mm-hmm. And so that means that that carbon is stored in the air for 80 years and is causing warming for that, you know, certain portion of that time. And, mm-hmm. But they're also ignoring the mm-hmm. – good? Well, I'm saying I was just that – uh, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. You go. <laughs> I was just saying that the air pollution effects are even more critical because they cause, um, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions uh, deaths per year from air pollution uh, due, due to biomass burning. And some of those chemicals are also global warming agents, like black carbon and brown carbon. They're actually more, uh, more potent over, uh, much more potent over the 10 to 20 year time frame of causing warming uh, than carbon dioxide. And as a result, you, you just, the biomass burning is causing a net warming of climate. And so a policy that reduces biomass burning, or which 90% of fires worldwide are human caused, that would go a long way to slowing global warming and also reducing health problems. Uh, but also reforestation is good too, and improving agriculture to, to capture more carbon. What is not good is spending money on what's called direct air capture, synthetic, I call it synthetic direct air capture, which are you know, machines mm-hmm. to suck carbon out of the air. That is not good. It's useless because you, it takes energy, first of all, and it only reduces carbon, and it doesn't and because it takes energy, you're actually not reducing a whole lot of carbon. Now, you can take that same money and you can spend it on a wind turbine or solar panel to replace coal or gas plant, electric power plants, and you not only reduce carbon, but you reduce air pollution and you reduce mining, and there's no equipment cost. Uh, so and take, take the example. Let's say you use a wind turbine to power the carbon capture equipment to suck carbon out of the air. People say, oh, that's great. It's in theory, it's great. Well, no, it's not great. It's actually horrible because by taking that wind turbine to power the carbon capture equipment, uh, mm-hmm. you could instead be taking that wind turbine to replace a coal plant or a gas plant. And when you do that, right. you eliminate the air pollution mm-hmm. from the coal or gas and you reduce the mining. Uh, and you don't have to spend money on the carbon capture equipment. So you could take that carbon capture equipment money and buy a second wind turbine to reduce more coal or gas. So there's just no there's no scenario at all in which uh, sucking carbon out of the air is better than uh, just taking that money uh, and replace it using it to buy solar and wind to replace coal or gas. So, that makes yeah, complete so there's, sense. There's certain, I mean, the, the other question yeah. I have is that the film um, points out that that, for example, the, you know, silicon is needed, and are there, you know, for, um, for solar arrays or for particular components of the renewable system of the past, or is, is there um, sufficient quantity of the key uh, elements and ingredients that would be needed for your plan, or are we heading, uh, risking heading into another scarcity cycle where there is some high-cost rare substance or it involves, uh, you know, uh, horrible har- harvesting practices in, in some uh, disadvantaged region or, you know, there's going to be a huge cost-mounting competition factor around any of the key ingredients that are needed um, to build out and implement the plans you're discussing. Yeah, so this is another area where the film was grossly exaggerating the issue. So mm-hmm. yeah, sure, you need to mine. You need to mine for components for solar panels and wind turbines. And just to put it on a scale, though, I mean, this is like you know, you you mine once 
for a wind turbine that lasts 25, 30 years. And then that those components could be recycled. But even if they're not, okay, it's once every 25 or 30 years that you'd have to mine. Now, compare that with a fossil fuel plant. So compare a wind turbine to a natural gas turbine. Okay, well, the natural gas turbine, first of all, you have to mine the components to build that the first time, just like the wind turbine. So that's the same amount of uh, same period. Let's say the, maybe the natural gas plant lasts longer, maybe lasts 40 years, but that's, it's going to be irrelevant, you'll see. But you then have to mine for the natural gas, or if it's a coal plant, the coal, continuously every day forever. <laughs> okay. And so you're, so they're exaggerating. They're talking about one time mining to build a component that lasts 25, 30, or 40 years versus having to mine every day forever. They're saying we shouldn't do a one time mining. We should do everyday mining, continue using fossil fuels and mine every day. So do you know how many, how many oil and gas wells are drilled in the United States every year? 50,000. There are 50,000 new oil and gas wells drilled in the United States every single year. And there are 1.3 million active oil and gas wells in the U.S. right now. There are 3.3 million inactive abandoned ones that are many of them are leaking. So, and as I mentioned earlier, 1.3% of the entire United States land area is used for the natural gas, coal, oil industries, their their footprint on the ground. So if we want to keep with natural gas and coal, yeah, we'll, yeah, we, we would have to, we have to continue 50,000 new wells every year for infinity. And so at some point, you know, the whole U S is going to be covered with these things. And so you want to do that, or we're talking, they showed footage of one mine, you know, for, uh, it's like there's quartz or quartz mine or something. Okay. So, yeah, I'm not saying that I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to be, uh, you know, there's no, there's no free lunch for anything. I'm sure it's going to take some energy and that energy can be renewable for the, for building turbines and solar panels. It's going to take some mining, but it is trivial compared with the mining associated with natural gas, coal, oil. And so it's just so out of proportion for uh, what's relevant. And to then say that we shouldn't do that because we'd rather kill 7 million people every year from the air pollution that the fossil fuel industry uh, is putting out with the bio, with biomass and bioenergy. Uh, that's just, you know, it's really irresponsible journalism. Mm-hmm. Let me go to a question about sort of the overall uh, thrust or takeaway of the Moore film, which is, you know, resonating with people in a certain way. Um, and, you know, I could sort of comment more about why that might be in a time when we're all shut in, unable to engage, we don't know the future of the economy, our health is under threat, and therefore, you know, this is a time when a film that basically brings a message about uh, austerity, consumerism, and uh, depopulation, um, you know, could kind of get a hearing, even if, as you've thoroughly debunked, you know, uh, the actual relevance of the plans that they are, uh, you know, kind of putting in the forefront to attack something that actually is our best hope. Um, what place in the plan that you have or what need is there for a um, reduction of certain kinds of consumption? Because, you know, one of the you know, major uh, 
sort of takeaways of Planet of Humans is that, uh, you know, we all need to reduce our consumption. It's on us. It has to be solved by us as individuals um, to reduce consumption. Of course, a lot of that consumption may be reduced through, uh, you know, a downturn in the economy if we don't uh, kind of take on any major initiatives like this one to kind of rebuild the economy. Um, But, you know, do you see where, where would you place the role of consumption, especially consumption by the wealthier nations um, in uh, getting us where we want to go or in keeping us within the parameters of energy use um, that uh, your plan, the Green New Deal plan, would allow for? So, yeah, I mean, the more consumption reduction, the better. I mean, I should repeat again that the our plans would result in about 57% average worldwide reduction of mm-hmm. end-use power demand uh, without mm-hmm. people even changing their habits. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's the first step. But then, yeah, additional consumption reductions beyond that are definitely a benefit, and that can be that can take the form of people like working from home. Now we're seeing right now, you know, everybody's working from home. A lot of people are working from home. Instead, and so not driving, so that's reducing fossil fuel use. Uh, and but even you know in a renewable energy economy, that would be reducing you know electricity requirements for battery electric cars, and also reduces the number of buildings we need because we don't need also any commercial buildings if people more people worked at home, and all the energy that goes into the commercial buildings. So, and then. You know, conserving energy more, like making putting more energy efficiency improvements, like weatherizing your home, that can go a long way in places that get really cold or really hot. Uh, so, but it's not it's to, for us. It's a benefit. It's a benefit, and we encourage it. Uh, we we do our plans assuming people won't conserve more than uh, kind of the minimal amount. Um, so we still think there's a solution without it. It's not, it's not a necessary component to obtain a solution, but it definitely makes it easier uh, if we uh, do cons- conserve more and reduce energy use more. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that makes complete sense. I mean, another question which is not sort of maybe in your wheelhouse, or perhaps it is and you've looked into this, uh, it's something that I have done many um, shows on, uh, many of these podcasts has been on the theme of how do we pay for it? Because, you know, I think that there is certain one of the reasons I'm sort of uh, concerned about this more film is because, you know, you hand put a bad jacket on something. It gets disseminated through major media, through right wing media. And then you have this insurmountable um, belief that's been kind of instilled in the public. Um, and, you know, if renewable energy uh, doesn't work or it's of some, some kind of scam and that gets out there, it really takes something that is earth-saving and life-saving and, and majorly important that we need to move ahead on and, you know, to, uh, and to weaponize this false belief that renewables have nothing to offer, I think is actually dangerous in the current climate. So, you know, I'll just kind of say that, but, but, you know, we've seen a situation with Senator Sanders where he was vaguely characterized as unelectable. And then a lot of people heard that in the media and they came to believe it. Um, But, you know, on this front, um, you know, the big question around the Green New Deal, even though, as you mentioned, studies show it's wildly popular and 
vast majority of people want it. Um, the counter argument that has been put forth is how can we pay for it? We can't possibly um, afford this. And I've had economists on the show who are saying, you know, not only that the cost reductions uh, and all of the health benefits and, and reduction of health costs and you know, ability to maintain a habitable, you know, planet, um, which are, you know, major upsides, um, are, are, but are also complemented by the fact that we can, you know, make unilateral decisions to give, you know, bail out millionaires yet, billionaires yet again, um, with no one asking how we paid for it. Um, so, you know, I've heard arguments that, in fact, we can, in a similar light, make, the government can make this investment um, that would benefit everyone. Do you have anything else to kind of add to that or to comment about it in terms of the um, economic potential to do this? Yeah, well, so the upfront cost of doing this is cheaper than the cost of maintaining the fossil fuel system, for sure. I mean, we calculate for the United States, for example, um, we're on the order of, of $7.8 trillion upfront cost, but that's spread over mm-hmm. the whole time that you're in you're putting it up, and that pays for itself by electricity sales. So $7.8 trillion pays for itself by electricity sales over time. And so there's really, well, in that compares to on the order of $17 trillion, uh, well, in terms of the annual cost, uh, there's, well, I, mean, I should back up. So, the, yeah, the $7.8 trillion is the upfront capital cost. And then per year, though, the actual cost per year uh is going to you know because you're you're putting up you're, you're putting up the facilities and then you're paying for energy each year. Now the annual energy cost in, with in a fossil fuel system is about 17 trillion dollars per year uh, in 2050 uh, versus the, fossil, the wind, water, solar cost is about seven trillion dollars per year. So this is where we get uh, you know this huge reduction, like over a 60 percent reduction of annual cost. Uh, by going to clean renewable energy. But as I said, you're paying for the clean renewable energy system by electricity and energy sales every year. And so and technically you don't need any government uh, support. However, if you want to do it at the pace that we need to do it at, by 80% by 2030, we need to take away subsidies from fossil fuel companies and we need to shift those toward renewable energies to speed up the transition because it's not going to happen on its own at that pace unless we do subsidize it, that's for sure. And so that's where the subsidies are needed to speed up the transition. But it does pay for itself over time. And as a result, uh, it's really beneficial for society. So it's not like it's, you know, we're going to bankrupt the economy to do this. No, on the other hand, we're saving a huge amount of money, creating jobs. And that job, creating jobs actually multiplies money because that means more people get wages, more wages get taxed. And so more money goes back into the economy. So it's a positive feedback. And you're saving lives, and that saves money because you reduce health costs, you reduce insurance rates, you reduce workman's compensation rates, fewer lost work days, fewer lost school days, more efficient economy overall. Uh, it's, uh, it's just a lot of misinformation about uh, both the costs and the benefits of an entirely clean renewable energy system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, I, it seems like I guess part of – I think part of the reason for this film uh, 
taking people in as well is that we just had the disappointment of uh, Bernie Sanders, who is really, you know, along with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, major champion um, of the Green New Deal that we've been discussing uh, throughout today's podcast. Um, but, you know, so like seeing that lack, I think people are then turning around and saying, well, you know, now I must tighten my budget and I don't, you know, anything that, uh, 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 you know, the forms of renewable energy that were um, kind of brought on first in the past have proved to be yet another sham. And so, you know, our only way out um, is to uh, reduce, 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 uh, you know, consumption um, without realizing that, in fact, a whole new generation of, uh, tech, you know, kind of engineering and analysis and, and all of that has come into play so that we could do both um, and have the benefit of this, but we really should be fighting for this rather than participating, going down blind alleys, and you know, in terms of taking it down. Now, you have done... Um, the work of looking at how these models could be applied in every state of this country and around the world. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Uh, yes, yeah, so we've developed plans for each of the 15 United States to transition to 100% clean renewable energy and storage for all energy and for 100 and. Uh, 43 countries of the world, which represent about 99.7% of all the world emissions. And also we've done it for um, dozens of uh, cities and towns. And these roadmaps call for transitioning um, all energy to clean renewables. And they, you know, they give a timeline. They look at the cost benefits. They look at the health cost benefits and the climate cost benefits. Uh, and they look at the land areas required and in some cases the materials required. And, you know, the conclusion is uniformly that it's technically and economically possible. Uh, there are social and political uh, barriers that can and should be overcome. Uh, but those are the, really the main obstacles. They're not technical or political obstacles. Te sorry, technical or economic obstacles. They're really social and political obstacles. And we're, we see that right now. I mean, this, like the Michael Moore film, it's a social obstacle. It's like, a, you know, you get people who, who just – you know, take pot shots and they distract people from the truth about you know what's actually what can be done. Uh, you know, based on you know just to, to kind of sell a movie, and that's like I consider that a social obstacle. Um, as a, not not to say that everything should be propaganda. Sure, you should be critical of uh, everything to try to make improve it. But uh, there's a difference between trying to improve something by being critical of it uh, versus just making it, just smearing it, making it look like it's uh, useless and worthless. And that's what I think. Yes, I agree with you. I mean, one of the things, because I've been out and about on social media <clears throat> engaging with many people on this particular debate, and one of the things that I keep saying to people is, what's the plan, Stan? In other words, <laughs> you know. Even if you believe these, you know, mistruths and you're not, uh, you know, critical at really examining whether they are true today, a lot of people can't even understand that going back 10 years ago and looking at what was going on then may not be that relevant right now. Um, but, you know, but further, uh, if you don't, if, if you, for example, which is another area of the film, which is not our main focus, um, and, you know, definitely the big greens have, 
um, you know, have something to kind of account for. Some are worse than others. Some have really taken a lot of fossil fuel money and played a diversionary role. Others have played a compromise role. And then there are some who've really been on the side of taking all of this down. Um, so, you know, uniformly wanting to take down um, – you know, the the uh, environmental organizations, and some of them may deserve it. So I'm not, like, per, per, you know, kind of defending them as a monolith. And I myself have never taken a nickel from any of them, and I've seen their shortfalls in my reporting. So I'm not saying it's non-existent. But I'm just saying in terms of what is really facing us, the dilemmas, the obstacles, as you say, that are facing us, um, you know, uh, we need to become more active, and so, but we need to become active for the right solutions. And Planet of the Humans is really, you know, it's galvanizing, um, but it's not offering solutions. I mean, this whole conversation with you, um, Professor Mark Z. Jacobson, over the last hour, you know, has, you know, is talking in depth about solutions. Um, where else might people go on the Internet to read more about your plans in greater depth? Uh, well, I have all our plans um, on my website at Stanford University. Um, there's also mm -hmm. the solutionsproject.org. The solutionsproject.org, mm -hmm. if you go there under clean energy, there are, there are actually – infographic maps you can pick a country or a state and click on it and you'll have a summary of a, of a plan for that or even a city and at the bottom of those is a link to our our stanford university uh, website but yeah that's um, on my website for stanford is really the uh, where all these plans and the papers the published papers that are associated with them um, i also have a, a textbook that's going to be published in August uh, called 100% Clean Renewable Energy and Storage for Everything through Cambridge University Press. But there's a, on my website, there's a link uh, to that as well. Um, but it really lays out all these, kind of summarizes all the plans and the science. Uh, you know, a lot of it's layman, but there's some detail as well. And yeah, so that would be kind of be the most comprehensive summary of everything together. But otherwise, there's a lot of individual papers or a lot of uh, uh, blogs or um, summary layman's papers, um, and then there are the actual well, plans themselves. Yeah, that sounds great. Listen, that's great for the d deep uh, researchers, um, and we need more of them so that we, you know, can look more critically um, at uh, sort of gotcha statements or anecdotal comments, um, you know, being used to bolster a particular vision. I mean, are there any final words um, that you would offer to listeners of Connect the Dots? Well, I would just say that, you know, stay positive. This is a definitely a solvable problem. And, there, you know, certainly there are barriers, but if we keep, a, if we keep our eye on the ball, uh, we can overcome these barriers and solve these problems. Uh, people can do things in their own homes. You can you can change your home to be electric. Don't allow gas on the property if you're building a new home or shut it off. If you have an existing home, go to heat pumps, uh, go to electric induction cooktops, um, you know, go to use more energy-efficient lighting, uh, go to electric cars, of course, reduce energy use, telecommute more, less flying, etc. So there's a lot of things individuals can do and also support policies that uh, are beneficial to transitioning to large-scale clean renewable energy. So those are, the, yeah, those are my final words. I think this is a solvable problem. 
you very much. I really appreciate your taking the time to um, speak with me and our listeners here on Connect the Dots. We've been talking with Professor Mark C. Jacobson, who is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University and one of the principal architects of the Green New Deal, um, which, uh, you know, was developed by, uh, as part of uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign, as well as with major input from uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other groups, um, which is, in fact, you're doing the scientific part of what is a very uh, across-the-board, integrative, uh, intersectional uh, effort and coalition of different groups. I, I also want to state that. So this is not like a, a corporate monolith of any kind from uh, you know, so kind of coming down from stock investors or anything like that. So, um, so thank you so much for your work, and thank you for being with us today on Connect the Dots, um, Professor Jacobson. Well, thank you for having me on your show. And thank you, listeners, for being with us for another edition of Connect the Dots. I'll be back next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. Stay safe. Be well keep marching forward, even though we're sheltering at home, so we're sort of marching in place and sort of conceptualizing and envisioning where we need to go. Who 